Join me this morning in Romans. We're still there. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, hey, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Whether you join us virtually or you're here, uh, it's good to see you. Um, a number of years ago, our family went out to Colorado, and if you know anything about Rocky Mountain National Park, you know that when you drive through it, there's plenty of times where you think you've seen it all right? Like, you see the horizon, and you're like, this is amazing. And then you begin to continue to travel, and you get to the next thing, you get over that horizon, and there's more. And I feel like this is a little bit like what it's like trucking through the book of Romans, talking about this gospel. It's as if we get to the end of chapter 5, and we see this great truth that because of our faith in Christ, because of the faith in what Christ has done, there's no longer any condemnation, no more guilt that you're declared righteous. And then, guess what? There's more. There's more. How big is this gospel? How big is the gospel that you know? That's how Paul challenges us here. And it, it's interesting, um, the, the very first verse, Paul asks this question. It makes sense because here's, here's the deal. Like, if it's simply through faith in Jesus, and that's it, like that's different than any other religious system under the sun. It's based on what he's done, that you can be forgiven and welcomed in. Then then who cares how you live? That's basically the question. Paul says this in verse 1. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, we saw last week that where sin increased, this superabounding grace increased even more. It matched it. 
And so it might be said this way, if you have a father who is willing to bail you out at any point, whenever you get into trouble, and he has unlimited resources, unlimited grace, then why not just have some fun? Live however you want to live. And what's incredible is Paul says, there's no way, there's no way you can do that because of the gospel. There's three things Paul shows us here. Paul shows us there's a new freedom in the gospel. There's a new union in the gospel. And thirdly, there's a new identity in the gospel. So let me pray and we'll get in. Father, we come to you today and we pray that you would, wherever we're coming from today, that we would encounter you in your word. Your gospel would meet us and it would be good news because that is what it is. And that, Lord, through your word, you would set us free. Amen. Well, a new freedom. Uh, we've seen over the last number of weeks, particularly in chapters 1, 2, the beginning of 3, this, here's basically the summary statement, is that you and I are not free. That everyone, no matter your religious belief system or background, you're not free. That you serve something. And Paul puts it here that you are under the dominion of sin. And here's how this looks. So for example, when Scripture says that we are not free, it means all of us serve something. We all look to something for life, for significance, for security. We look to something for it, and that is what we serve. And so, for example, you can serve your career. You can serve your career and say, if I'm somebody in this career, then, then I've arrived. That, that's where my identity is. It could be in a relationship. It could be in money. It could be power or approval. But the Scriptures basically say that you've taken something in creation something that might be good, and you've made it ultimate, so that you're not free. And here's what's remarkable, because in verse 2, Paul's answer to why to not keep on sinning, he says this in verse 2, by no means, how can we who died to sin live in it any longer? That word, that phrase, died to sin, Paul unpacks that the rest of the this, this, this chapter, but suffice it to say, a great summary of it is in verses 6 and 7. Listen to what, what Paul says in verses 6 and 7. Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin." What Paul has just said, as one commentator put it, the moment you become a Christian, you are no longer under the reign, the ruling power of sin. In other words, let me put it this way. Many Christians understand what you're saved from, but oftentimes we do not understand what we're saved to. I said this a moment ago, up to chapter 5, we've seen what we've been saved from, the righteous wrath of God towards sin and the judgment that comes because of our sin. We've been saved from that. But do you understand 
what Paul is saying here, not only are you free from the penalty of sin, you are free from the very power of sin. That's what's remarkable. That's why Paul says, how can you keep on sinning when you have been freed from its ruling power in your life if you put your trust in him? Now, we need to be... I want to say a couple things. One is... Two things. First is, I don't want you to overestimate what Paul is saying here. It'll be clear in the weeks to come that sin, though it's not in the reigning position, still has power and influence in a Christian's life. So one way of thinking about this is consider for a moment that a a wicked military force had complete control of a country. And then a good army invades, and they, and they overwhelm the wicked army. And they set up a good government, and they set up the capital and everything else. Everything's in the hands of the good, um, the good army. But then those soldiers that were wicked, that were kicked out of power, they're still a guerrilla force. In other words, they still, they, they still wreak havoc for the new and rightful government. Oftentimes, they impose their will on part of the country, even though they will never be back into power. Paul is saying that if you are in Christ, if you put your faith in Him, there has been a decisive break. Sin is no longer on the throne. But I also don't want you to underestimate what Paul is saying here. Listen, oftentimes when you become a Christian, you, you're quite aware that there are some things that need to change in your life, right? But oftentimes we don't understand the absolute overhaul of what God wants to do and what he will do in your life. C.S. Lewis, perhaps in mere Christianity, put it better than anybody. He says this, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. What a picture. That God intends to make a palace. (laughs) That his work is to transform us from the inside out. And Paul has just said, here's the new horizon. Not only are you saved and rescued in the gospel from the penalty of sin, but you are rescued from the very power of sin. 
That's good news. But secondly, Paul shows us that there's a, a new union, a new union with Christ. Look at, look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The source and even the goal of the Christian life of this power, this freedom from sin, comes from this union with Christ. And this, isn't only the, this is not the only place we see this. Imagine with me for a moment that there is a gallery that we are going to, and the gallery is entitled Union with Christ. And we walk in this art gallery, and we're looking at all these pictures. And the first picture we see is this beautiful vine. And there are branches growing on this vine. We keep walking down this gallery, and the next picture we see is a picture of a building. And there's this very clear stone in the middle that's holding all of this together, and there are these small stones about, but it's this beautiful building. And the next, the, the, the next painting we see is a picture of a wedding, of a marriage. And the next picture we see almost looks like a science picture, but it's the human body. And we get to the last picture. And the last picture is someone coming out of water. Union with Christ is all over the Scriptures, yet often, as it's spoken of, it's often spoken of using metaphors, using pictures. That first image in that gallery, Jesus in John 15 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The second one, Peter in his epistle says that Jesus is a living stone, the cornerstone in a building, and that you are being built up, that you are a brick in that building. The third one, the picture of a wedding, Ephesians 5, Paul writes and says it's an image of Christ and the church. That's the picture of what marriage actually points to. That human body, the, the, the kind of physical science picture Paul in 1 Corinthians says, we are parts of a body of which Christ is the head. All of these images are trying to wrap our minds around this truth that somehow through faith in Christ we are united to him. It is this dynamic of how do I share this? How do I communicate these truths? It's all these different vantage points. And yet the very final one, that picture of the person coming out of the water is the one that Paul uses here. Speaking about baptism, look, look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we do baptisms here You've heard this plenty of times as you've seen it because we talk about how this, this picture of baptism, of, of someone going down into the water and coming up, it is a picture. It is an outward manifestation of an inward reality that you go down under and your old life dies with Christ. And just as he was raised from the dead, so you are raised to a new life. 
Paul put it later in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He said this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. In one way or another, it's to put it this way. That God's future, his consummation of him making all things new, has rushed into the very present moment and taken hold of you and is even now moving you toward that end. We see it here that this union with Christ, this is what enables for the power to change. This is the source of change. It's that connection to Jesus, to who he is, to what he has done. Let me just say this this morning. If you're not a Christian, one of the things, one of the images that Jesus uses that I think is most compelling is at one point in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself a physician. Think about that for a moment. That he's a physician that has come to heal. And he's not speaking physically, right? He's talking about that we're sin sick. And that he is the one who you can come to and that he will heal you. That he will take your inward heart and he will transform it from the inside out if you would come to him. I wonder if you know that. I wonder if you know that he's for you. I wonder if you think that he would reject you when actually he says, come to me, all you who are weary. He's a good physician who heals. It all comes through this relationship with him. But lastly, Paul shows us that we have a new identity. Look at verse 11. This is the hinge. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This phrase, so you also must consider yourself dead, means that this new freedom that you have needs to be deliberately deployed. To, um, to consider, to reckon. It's, in the grammar, it's saying each day, every day, to offer yourself afresh to God. Um, it's a little bit like this. Um, when you, when you turn your computer on, it has a default setting, right? It has a default setting. It goes to a certain screen, a certain setting. But there's also this thing called the safe mode. And depending upon what you have or what you use, you have to push different buttons. But basically, it'll get you to a place where you can basically identify and potentially fix problems. But you have to be intentional about it in terms of how you boot it up, right? One way or another, Paul is saying each day you need to be intentional about offering yourself, about knowing who you are. Because look at what verse 13 says here. It says this, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Think about this for a moment. In other words, what Paul is saying here, it's entirely possible to be freed from sin's ruling power and yet still offer yourself 
to the same master, to your old life. And Paul's saying, you're free. And here's what that means. That means you're really free. You don't have to live that way anymore. Well, what does that look like? Um, years ago, one of my friends opened uh, a business, and they had some initial investors who were invested in this uh, venture. And um, early on, some friends who were investing in this business ended up withdrawing their funding. And um, they went actually out and started another company that offered similar services in the same, uh, in the same city. And my friend said this, every time he saw signage for that, for that new business, he dealt with bitterness and malicious thoughts. There'd be moments where he would fantasize about that business going under. And it was a crossroads for him. This is the part, like this is verse 13 in real time. How is he going to offer himself, not as an instrument of unrighteousness, how is he going to walk in this newness of life? It was a crossroads. And to be honest, he would say that this growth did not come easy. In fact, it was painful and quite slow. Firstly, he knew he shouldn't be fantasizing about this business going under. He knew he had to stop thinking that way. And the only way he knew how was to begin praying for this business. And he knew Jesus called him to love his enemies. And so he actually began to pray that this business would succeed. And he, I, let me tell you what, he felt so fake doing it, right? Because he didn't feel it from the inside, but he knew this is, this is the way of Jesus. This is union with him. This is where it goes. And in the midst of this, there's also some deeper heart work that began to take shape. One of the reasons why he was so angry, one of the reasons why he was so malicious towards this other person is because, honestly, most of his life had been built on that identity being a successful businessman. And what began to happen, he began to understand a little bit more of what Jesus has done and who his identity was in, in him. He began to recognize, why would I find my identity in a business when I've already been found and loved and accepted by the God of the universe who has sent his son? And see, it wasn't just knowledge up here, but the penny was dropping and it was going deeper. And it was enabling him to walk in greater and greater freedom. Listen, if you were to talk to him today, he would tell you, it is still a fight. But he would also tell you his heart is softer. When he prays for that business to succeed, it's not 100% all there but it's much further along than it ever has been. Uh, he would tell you that even now, when things are shaky in his business, there is a greater depth and poise that he has because his identity is less and less found there and it's more and more found in his union with Christ. This is what it means on the street 
in the midst of your day to wake up and offer yourself as an instrument of righteousness to this good master Jesus and to not offer yourself to your old life. Let me ask you, where does this, what areas of your life currently is this freedom from sin being worked out? Where's the fight? Let me ask you this question. Are, are there areas of your life, or, or maybe put it this way, think about the, the house analogy, right, that Lewis used. Are there, are there rooms in your house that you said, nope, you can't go in here. This one's off limits. Let me encourage you. I know some of you feel stuck. I know some of you feel hopeless in this struggle. But let me encourage you this week. Um, let me ask this. Are you walking this alone? One of, one of the things that Hebrews says, it says, let us throw off every sin and thing that hinders us. There's this let us. This is a community project. You know, one of, the, one of the ways that we're designed as a church is just to live in the life of city groups. Is there someone in your city group this week simply to say, hey, would you, would you pray for me? Do, do you know, like, that's, that's how we do this thing together? It's a close friend. Or maybe you're, you're, you're not there yet in relationships, but let me just encourage you to lean into others and to seek help, that he's with you, that you are not alone in this. In fact, I would say this oftentimes in the church, it's hard to be honest about these things. We think we're supposed to have it figured out. We think we're supposed to be much further along, and the truth is we're not. But Paul reminds us here, Look what Paul says at the end of verse, at, at verse 14. He says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but you are under grace. You are not under law, but you are under grace. Paul is saying, you're in a brand new kingdom. The law, when you were there, it was up to you to make yourself right. But in this kingdom of grace, you are received and you are welcomed in as you are. You don't clean yourself up. Under the law, it was based on fear and there was shame. But in this kingdom of grace, what, is, what does the king do? He covers himself in your shame on the cross. He takes it. And he serves you grace. And he takes your shame. He welcomes you to the table. In, in, in this kingdom of grace, when you look at the cost of what, it, of what it took him to do, when you see that love, what does it do? When you see him giving his life, not taking from you, but giving his life, what does it do? It changes you from the inside out. And you begin to look at the old masters, the old life, and you begin to say, I don't want to serve them any 
more because of what this king has done for me. Listen, if the gospel is true, then it means your obedience was never the pre- prerequisite to be in this relationship. For it was while you were still in sin that he died for you. And therefore, it means this. Whatever progress or lack thereof you've made, it's not going to change his love for you. And close with this. Richard Lovelace said this. The faith that is able to warm itself the fire of God's love, instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources, is actually the root of holiness. Church, there's good news. You have been set free from the power of sin. Offer yourself to the one who has died for you as an instrument of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we um, confess our need for you. We give you thanks for this good news that you have rescued us from the power of sin. Lord, would you help us to walk in this newness of life Would you help us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you? Amen.